Hello and welcome to episode number seven of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Matty Lovell and today I am chatting with the founder of the Cricket Live Foundation, Alex Reese. Welcome back to the Road to Success podcast. If this is your very first episode, then welcome. Thank you so much for checking it out. My name is Matty Lovell, and today I am very lucky to be chatting with Alex Reese. Now, Alex fundamentally has built a charitable organization that uses sport to enrich the lives of children in different parts of the world. But when you take a step back, what he's actually done is built a fully scalable, proven charitable model that is replicable anywhere in the world. And in doing so, there's a lot of lessons and learnings that are relevant for you know both non-profit and for-profit. And he's a very smart young man, and we talk a lot about those as well. We talk about the power of thinking big and why they did think so big right back at the start and how that's helped them now. We talk about some of the challenges and setbacks he's encountered along the way and how he's overcome them. We talk about how he managed to find himself in the boardroom of one of the world's biggest companies. And we talk about some of the lessons he's learned along the way, which to be honest, are relevant no matter what your endeavor is. He's an incredible young man. He's very inspiring and I really appreciate his time. Enjoy the podcast. Mr. Alex Reese, mate, thanks so much for joining me. Not a problem, Matty. In my planning for this, I realized that we've actually only, this is only the third time we've actually ever met. <laughs> it's nuts. I guess it's amazing what technology and Skype can do because it yeah, feels yeah. like we've uh, known each other for years. It does indeed. Hey, um, let's jump straight into it. What's the Cricket Live Foundation? What does it do? Cricket Live Foundation, in short, is a charitable organization and we use cricket as a way to develop life skills and education in underprivileged kids around the world. Simply put, we use sport as a vehicle to enrich the lives of kids that need it the most. Nice. That's a very clear synopsis. And like, I know there's a big story behind it. If you're going to give me a, a Cliff Notes version of how you got to where you are today and sort of give people a summary of, of your story, what would that be? I guess, you know, where we end up in life is like a, an amalgamation of experiences, basically. So the Cricket Live Foundation was a combination of experiences that I was part of when I was living in India as a, as a kid. I saw a need, and in order to try and solve those problems... I tried to find something consistent that we can all relate to and sport was that. So I think maybe at the, <laughs> at the time I was a little bit naive and I thought it was as simple as identifying a problem and finding a vehicle to solve that problem. You studied at university? That was your, so you Yeah, I studied a, a commerce degree at University of Canterbury. I mean, it's funny because I never set out to set up a charity at school I wanted to be an investment banker. I went to university, did marketing and finance. And it's really interesting because, you know, when you're studying a commerce degree, there's nothing there that tells you how to start a charity. You know, it's all about, you know, focus on the for-profit sector. And as I say, you know, the experiences that I experienced when I was growing up living in India basically gave me no other option but to do something for good. And for me, I didn't learn those skills at university. I just learned them in life, I life guess. Experience. Yeah. yeah, totally. I heard you speak recently and you, there was sort of like a, uh, almost like a serendipitous moment at university. You sort of turned up for your first day of uni and something happened. 
Well, a couple of things happened really. The first thing that happened was, and it was my second day of uni when we had the earthquake in Christchurch, um, so I kind of thought that that was a sign that maybe uni wasn't wasn't right for me, and so I ended up going back to India to um, just spend a bit more time over there. But also, fast forward a few years when I was still at university, I actually I, I miscalculated how many marks I needed to graduate, so in my last semester I had to pick a a paper that would give me easy credits and easy marks and that paper was one called uh, The Principles of Leadership and one of the really interesting tasks that we did in that course was um, to identify three things that we loved doing or that we were passionate about and turn that into a job and and I remember you know my three were entrepreneurship, travel and sport and I don't think it's a coincidence that I am where I am today because they are the three things I love the most and I may not be you know, in the for-profit sector which the university focused on but I created my own path using those three passions as a force to do good. Yeah, wonderful. And I guess I, I say the word serendipitous, it kind of seems like you're sort of the universe was pointing in the right direction. And, and now when you look back, Steve Jobs had a really good quote. He said, trust the dots. And what he meant was, because you know, he got fired from Apple and mm. he had a hell of a journey there. Mm. He calls them life events, but dots, they never make sense. Well, they don't seem to make sense at the time. But when yeah. you look back on them now, it seems like everything's aligned to have you exactly <laughs> where you are at the right yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so true. And, and I think it was um, those sort of dots were forming probably way back as well. You know, when I was growing up, I was lucky to have, you know, my dad set up his own business nearly 30 years ago. And and my childhood and youth was spent around someone like him that was an entrepreneur in his own right, set up his own successful business. And unbeknown to me, I think that kind of shaped my mindset that my future isn't limited to being an accountant or a lawyer or an investment banker or whatever. My future is basically determined by what I want yeah. and what I get pleasure out of doing. And so I think that would have been probably the first dot. And I don't even think I realised that until I was probably in my 20s. Yeah, as I said, the docs only make sense when you look backwards. Yeah. yeah, and you're right where you're meant to be. What I want to quickly chat about is setting up a business, setting up a charity anywhere is tough, but you decided to do it on the other side of the world to start with. What are some of the initial challenges when you were in the process of setting this up that you faced? I'll focus on the first point to start with, and that is the fact that it's on the other side of the world. And in a place like India and Sri Lanka, they're very different, let's call them markets, to what we're used to in New Zealand. And I think from a business point of view, this is something that I learnt further down the track. But I spent a lot of time invested in getting to understand these countries. I lived in Mumbai when I was 18 and got to understand how the Indians work, their culture, their lifestyle, and how you know successful business people run businesses. So I didn't go in there blind. I got to sort of understand the lay of the land, so to speak. And once I got to understand that, then the rest was kind of, I wouldn't say easy, but it made a lot more sense because then you can go and do your standard sort of plan on a page, business plans and get the wheels in motion but it has to be that way around because I, I don't think you can start with a business plan and then get to know the market first yes that was my sort of biggest learning and if the truth be told I didn't realize that at the time as well it was just the order of me doing things yeah so I was lucky in that sense I always say that a good place to learn to swim is the deep end yep you know sometimes Absolutely. something right and tends to be um, the best way to do it and and so 
now you're at the stage where you're running an, an international organization. And I mean, it is an international organization. And, and one of the things that stands out to me is that you thought big right from the start. You saw a need and it would have been easy for you to go and say, hey, look, I'm going to raise some money and give it to mm. this group in, mm. um, in India. And then you sort of went next step is like, right, I'm actually going to start a charity. Mm -hmm. And the next thing that you've gone and sort of done even bigger was you've, you've actually developed like a fully functional proven charity model that is replicable anywhere when it just requires funding to do it. And I yeah. guess the analogy of that is you've almost created like a franchise. Yeah. Rather than going, hey, look, I'm going to open up a bakery, you're going right from the start and going, I want to open up 100 bakeries across yeah. the world and you've built a formula that you can do that with rather than just focusing on, on one thing. And my question is, was that intentional when you started? It was. And... This is the main difference between the non-profit and the for-profit sector is when we talk about market or concept validation, is there a need for my product or service? If I was setting up a bakery, the question would be, do people in this area need bakery goods? Because if they don't, then there's no point in me setting up a bakery. My question to myself was, is there a need for this type of service in this area? And the answer was very simple because all you need to do is open your eyes and look around in these countries and see the need that actually, yes, the issues that these types of countries are faced with on a day-to-day -day basis are enormous. And at the time, I, I don't think I understood the enormity of these issues, but I knew that it was massive. So whatever we were going to do for us to make a, a serious impact and make a decent splash, we had to create something that was scalable and repeatable. And to do that, it had to be run by locals as well. So they were the sort of three things, was scalable, repeatable, and run by locals. And so what was the process of that? So, I mean, for it to be scalable, you have to, A, you build a team, which you've talked about having locals involved. You have to be able to delegate tasks effectively. But you also have to have, has to be system-driven rather than people-driven. I mean, is that what you went, right from the outset, you went, right, we've got to build a system that can do this rather yeah. than rely on an individual to be a part of it? Yeah, yeah. I would say as a person, I'm relatively laid back. But one thing that I hammer in to anything I do is the need to have things kind of systemized and have structures in place. And so everything that we do is kind of really structured. So we have pods of kids. In each pod, there are 24 kids. For each pod, there are two coaches. In each location, there are four pods. And in each hub, there are three centers. Everything is systematic, is scalable and repeatable. And it gives us the ability to say, well, if someone tomorrow turns around and says, here's a million dollars, I could tell them straight away, well, a million dollars will get us X, Y, and Z because we know that it costs $297 per kid per year and uh, go do the maths. Yeah. And I think, I mean, when you're starting off, that can seem like, a, you know, you're putting in too much effort than, than is required, I think, you know, but obviously you, the picture in your head was very clear what you were trying to do. It was a scalable company right from the start rather than a one-off organization. Yeah, well, I think it goes back to the analogy that, that someone told me when we first started was like, if you imagine your organization or your business as like a boat in a harbor, it's a lot easier to turn that boat around when it's small but a lot harder to turn it around when it's big. So we had to get the systems in place right from day dot. If we left it at two pods of kids, 
48 kids and had that structure in place and that's all we did, fine, that's okay. But we knew that if we grew, we knew how to do it. So I think that was the biggest thing to get those structures and systems tight really early. Because if it doesn't, I mean, sorry to interrupt you a bit, but like the, I think that's so important because the in any organization, the structures and the systems are almost the foundation. And yeah. if your foundation's off, doesn't matter how tall you build the yeah. building, the bigger it gets, the further off kilter it gets. And I think that an organization's the same. If, you, if the foundational structure underneath it is not systemized and scalable to start with, then if you just pour more and more people or more and more money on top of it, it just gets worse and worse as it gets bigger. Yeah, definitely. And I think... For me, because we were operating in places like Sri Lanka and India, which are pretty complex places, I had to eliminate as many variables as possible. So if I was confident in the structure, then that made me sleep at night. The only variable then is people. And I think creating a culture and an ethos amongst a team is something that I find quite easy to do. So I was comfortable with people being the only variable. Yeah, and if you can do that, then uh, I was taught that a business would be easy if it wasn't for people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Bring on the robots. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, it sounds like we're going that way to listen to Elon Musk. <laughs> hey, um, one of the other challenges you faced when you started was that you were 20 years old. Mm. You, know, you hadn't had a job, you didn't have a track record of success, and I know you were sort of, you know, you had this big dream, you had this vision that was pretty clear in your head, but mm. you're going in and, and the, the, for any charity, the big thing is funding. You're going in and you're sitting in boardrooms and you're asking for significant amounts of money, but you've got the barrier of, of being 20 years old. Mm. How did you overcome that? And then I guess the second part of that question is if you were to do it again now, would you do things differently? The first question about how I overcame, I, I don't think it was a, a single thing that I did apart from prove that what we did worked. Early on when I was trying to sell a dream or a vision, that was really difficult. Firstly, because you know I was young, baby-faced, new to the game, hadn't done anything before, hadn't even graduated university. And secondly, the perception of charities was something that I wasn't aware of. New Zealand isn't an anomaly with this, but there is this stigma attached to charities that is very sceptical we don't trust charities over here. Charities funnel money in places where they shouldn't. Charities overpay their executives. Charities are black holes where we don't know where the money's going. And so that kind of shocked me as well because when I went to talk to people about you know setting up a charity, it was almost like they were attacking me. And it's like, well, it's not my fault that there are a few out there that do ruin the reputation. But also, on the contrary, I'm not going to go and fire back at that lawyer that's questioning me and ask him how, how much he's getting paid or how much they spend on overheads. So there were this, these two learnings that I had really early on was I was young, I was inexperienced, but I had to trust my gut. And secondly, I also had to stick up for the whole charitable sector itself. It was a learning curve. And the second question you ask, uh, would I do things differently? I'm not actually sure I would. I think we are where we are today because of how I dealt with those um, situations. And I'm not massive for hindsight because what's happened has happened. One of the things I would probably do is actually just trust myself more trust my vision, trust the due diligence, so to speak, that I did beforehand and be confident in the fact that we had done the validation and we established that there was a huge need. So you think you sort of questioned yourself a little bit purely because of your age? I don't think I questioned myself. I think 
I gave people with so-called experience a little bit too much credit. And I know that sounds slightly arrogant, but I, I think when you are starting something, I mean, you'll know you started a couple of businesses and you'll have a number of people that, you know, chuck advice at you or maybe say, oh, you'll never be able to do this, you'll never be able to do that. And I think had I trusted myself and my vision more at the time, I would have been able to filter through that noise. I mean, it's kind of a balance, isn't it? You obviously want to take on advice from people that have had more experience than you, but at the same time, I don't know what it's, people call it a gut feeling or an instinct. I think there's a huge part of that. And I think that if you're willing, if you're passionate about something, you can put in the work to make something successful. Everyone, yep. you always hear this, you hear that quote that sort of, you know, make sure that you choose something that you're passionate about to follow with your yeah. with your life or career. And I always thought that it was just because so you enjoyed what you did. But now I look back on it, I think that it's because... Most people, whatever they're doing, they want to have some level of success at it, whatever yeah. that means for them. It's contextual. But for it to be successful, it's going to take a lot of hard work. And unless you're passionate about mm. it, you probably won't have the perseverance to put in the work over mm. an extended period of time to yeah. actually achieve it. So maybe that was for you. It was the fact that you believed in it enough that you were able to keep going. Yeah, I think, and I'll keep sort of trying to compare these stories to the for-profit sector as well. I think the one thing when it comes to you know running a charity or setting up a charity is that reason why is kind of a given. You know, but if I was to start an accounting firm, then I don't know how how much passion I could have <laughs> to that compared to uh, helping people that need it. That's not to say accounting firms are bad, but you need to have that really clear sort of purpose and that clear reason why. And whatever that reason why may be is so important because, as you say, you hit a stumbling block and you need to go back to why you're doing this. If it's weak and if it's fragile, then you're going to bow out pretty quickly. Yeah, and I guess when you've got you know hundreds of kids on the other side of the world that are reliant on you for their education mm-hmm. and funding, it's a very strong why, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it does... At times it makes things quite difficult because you, you know that there's such a reliance on you and any slip-up can have massive effects over there. But um, the reason why for me is, is really clear and that's been a, a massive help. Yeah, I bet. Funding, how do you do mm-hmm. it? Like, I mean, any charity organisation is has a huge focus on funding. It's how you stay afloat. Mm. I met with the guy who was the head of fundraising for Greenpeace and they had to have 10,000 individual donations a year just to break even. And mm. I worked that out, and that works out to be 27 a day. And yeah. I know it's tough and I know you've had battles and stuff, but what's that been like for you and how have you, you know, where have you been successful in your fundraising? First thing, and, and I'm at the stage with a foundation now to be really honest about this because I think there will be a lot of organisations out there that have the same challenges. I don't think we've done it very well. It's always been a battle. It's been way harder than I thought. Again, when we talk about the charitable sector here in New Zealand, I don't think we understand it all that well and I don't think we do it well. We have a number of successful businesses around New Zealand and, and I think if they upped their charitable giving, I don't think we would be seeing the issues that we're seeing in our own country at the moment. The challenge for us has been we operate overseas. So there's that scepticism there, you know, why should I help you when the money's going to go to India when I could help a local organisation? My answer would be, well, <laughs> you could help a local organisation, but chances are you don't. Back to the question, we've struggled. And we still struggle, despite 
having a fantastic program running in India and Sri Lanka. The one thing that I will say when it comes to funding is the terminology around donors and donations I think needs to change and the one area where we've been really, really fortunate and really successful is developing partnerships with local companies in the countries that we operate because I think collaboration is is massive and I think we can achieve a lot more when we collaborate with others. We work with Dilmati in Sri Lanka as our local partner and we work with Tata in India as our local partner. And I use that word intentionally because it's a partnership. They're not donors. Uh, We work with them on local recruitment strategy. We work together when it comes to dealing with local council and local government. And it's a true partnership. And I think the charitable sector needs to look at a couple of avenues. The first one is leveraging partnerships in the future to maximize impact. Or the second one is to go more down that kind of social enterprise route where there is an ability to generate revenue and use that revenue to build your platform. We have looked at that second option and and there just doesn't seem to be an option or a way for us to generate a revenue based on our current model, which means that we need to really focus on those strategic partnerships. Yeah, and those two groups you've mentioned, the Tata Group and the Dilmar team, and Dilmar T would be one of Sri Lanka's biggest companies, if not the biggest, I would say. Yeah, I think, let's put size and scale to one side, I think they would arguably be Sri Lanka's most reputable company. Meryl Fernando, who's the founder of Dilmar T, the guy that you see on TV, you know, he lives by a mantra of making business as a matter of human service and everything that they do has such a human element to it whether it be the the tea pickers up in the hills and their families or whether it be um, families that have children with disabilities or whether it be looking after their staff everything they do has that human element and it's no surprise that because of this approach their business thrives I've got no doubt that there's that correlation between the two yeah, and the Tata group in India, you know, I've when I was in India, you see Tata on the back of every car, mm. but can you maybe just, anyone that's listening doesn't know what, what Tata do or what they own, do you want to give them a quick synopsis? Yeah, so Tata is a massive conglomerate of companies in India. It's a family company. I'll use their words. They do everything from salt to spaceships and everything in between. They're a phenomenal company. Again, similar to Dilma in the sense that it's built on family values. You know, I was fortunate to meet Mr. Tata a couple of years ago when I was over there. And, you know, you can you can see the passion that they have for their business, even though it's one of the biggest companies in the world. Good enough is not enough for them. And, you know, it's really great to see these companies of the scale. You know, they have the Tata Trusts, which is, you know, the philanthropic arm that do such incredible work around around India. And we're just so fortunate to be able to implement our program alongside them. Yeah, and how did that work? I mean, that's a whether it's for profit or not for profit. You know, to be able to align with large organisations can be, you know, a difficult task at best. How did you get them on board? I guess is, is what I'm asking. Not without its challenges, but all good things take time. We're fortunate to have Sir Richard Hadley as our patron, and we had Sir Richard reach out to Mr. Ratan Tata, who is Mr. Tata, mm-hmm. and uh, wrote to him basically explaining what we do as a foundation that we'd love to come to Mumbai to meet with him and and talk about how we could potentially work together. And it took 
probably 18 months to get a, a response from Mr. Tata, but uh, his response was accompanied with a with an invite for myself and, and Sir Richard to go over to Mumbai to meet with them. And that was a few years ago now, so I was 23, I think, at the time. And I remember going up to the boardroom uh, in the World Trade Center in, in Mumbai. Um, you've got Mr. Ratan Tata there. You've got Sir Richard Hadley. Ravi Shastri was there, who's a famous Indian cricketer and now coach of the Indian cricket team. You had a, a board table with 12 people sitting around it and then the perimeter of the room with you know, another 20 people sitting around it just for this meeting. I won't say that it wasn't because <laughs> Sir Richard Hadley was in the room and that was that was the reason. But for me, it was one of those moments where I knew when I sat down at that board table that we were going to get a positive response from them. And I say that because I looked out the window and that was where exactly where the idea for the foundation came about. And so we were able to talk about what we did and, and the reason for wanting to do this in the most genuine of ways. And we struck up a really strong relationship from excuse the pun, ball one, and it's been sort of positive ever since. Yeah, great. It's an amazing story. Were you nervous for that meeting? Was I nervous? Um, <laughs> I mean, it was one of those moments. It was a pinch yourself moment. You, you fly over to India with Sir Richard Hadley, for starters, arguably one of New Zealand's most successful cricketers. Then you get to Mumbai, and I just remember the feeling. We got picked up by the Tata team and taken to the World Trade Center, and I, and I was... I'm, I'm not sure I was showing it on the outside, but inside I was a bit of a state. But again, we speak about having a clear reason why. And again, when I got in that room, I knew why we were there and what our objective was. And that just makes it really easy to yeah. be fair. Yeah, that's a great answer. Hey, you've talked about it a couple of times, and I know there's the stigma of money going overseas. You know, and I experienced it when we did our fundraising campaign to support you. Yeah. And half our money was staying in New Zealand, half the money was going to you. And you know, still, I get messages from people that you know, friends, yeah. you know, to say, "Hey, um, a shame the money isn't staying in New Zealand." And it's frustrating for me, and that was you know, that was a probably seven or eight months of fundraising. Yeah, why is that? Why do we have it? And must do yeah here. it does do my head in I try and always look at where people are coming from when they criticize me for that because if I can understand where they're coming from then I might be able to empathize or, <laughs> or sympathize with them I think New Zealand is a small country we're an isolated country and we're pretty in a good way we're a proud country for a country of our size where we're innovative, we're successful, we've got a relatively strong economy. And I think we want to know that everything we do is made in New Zealand, the profits stay in New Zealand, and we look after New Zealand. But the reality is there's a big wide world out there, and we as a country rely on a lot of other countries. And so I set up a charity, and our objective is charitable. What we do is nothing but charitable. We do it in countries like India, where New Zealand and India have a really important relationship. And this isn't about picking sides. This is about being good people. You know, So when I get criticised about money going overseas, I get perplexed by it because you know we have a duty of care to look after our friends. And if our friends are living in a different country, it doesn't matter. I spent a lot of time growing up in India and I have a really strong connection with that country. I've got a really strong connection with Sri Lanka and, and I just think that country aside, you do good to do good. 
and it doesn't matter where. The other sort of side to that coin is that New Zealand has its problems. You read the papers and you see the, the stats on poverty in New Zealand and things like that. And I'm not going to deny that because it's reality and we need to sort those out. What we do have is actually a government that is pretty supportive of these issues. So if you're hard up against it, you can access the benefit, for instance, or you can get you know, food stamps or accommodation allowances and things like that, which is fantastic. We also have a very, very good um, state school system where, you know, kids are supported from the age of five through to, you know, when they leave school and it is a really good state school system. We also have a number of organisations, I think the number's about 140, don't quote me on that, that are set out to oversee the challenges such as poverty amongst children, education, things like that. So I'm not going to say we, we do things perfectly, but there are support systems in place. So when I go to India and I see, you know, I call them my friends, if they have a rough season and they don't get any any rain for their crops and they don't have anything to sell, they got no money. They can't access a benefit. They can't access housing allowance or food stamps or whatever it may be. So what's the alternative? So I think it's a long-winded answer of basically saying that you can support New Zealand causes, you can support overseas causes. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. I'm not giving people one option. If they want to support us, it doesn't mean they can't also support a New Zealand organisation. So it's something that's really close to me and, and, it, and it does frustrate me. But I would be really, really happy if the people that said, you know, why are you spending money overseas? I would be really happy if I knew that they were contributing to something on their doorstep as well. That is an amazing answer. I think um, you, you obviously thought about it a lot. It's been on your mind for years probably now by the looks of it. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't thought about it as much. And, you know, to me, it's I probably find it a bit more frustrating. You know, I, I maybe don't have the empathy level that, that you do. I, I remember, you know how the Notre Dame Cathedral burnt down well, a part of it burnt down recently and, you know, within about 48 hours, yep. you know, a couple of different organisations and contributed yep. two or $300 million to it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, these people started popping up all over the show sort of saying, you know, like, oh, that amount of money could have ended mm. pollution in, in this area and stuff. And I personally just got so frustrated with it. And I, I thought that if everyone that, that shared that meme that said that that amount of money could have helped the ocean actually went out and raised $5,000 mm. or $2,000 or $1,000 or $50 or $10 or something. Five. Yeah, yeah $5. <laughs> like it would have been a, it would have made a difference. But, and I was, I was thinking about it a lot before I spoke to you because I was trying to figure out why. Like why did, yeah. and, and it's, it's just easier. It's easier for people to sit behind a computer and piss and moan about someone doing something else because they value it than yeah. it is for them to get off their ass. And, and the only difference is, is that they value a certain organization more than another. They value the oceans over this or the whatever it is. And Yeah, but I don't actually know if they do. And again, I, I felt exactly the same as you. I thought the fact that, you know, France could raise 800 million euros in 24 hours from three people. Let's put it in perspective. There's three people that stumped up with that money. Yet they're the ones that get criticised. The alternative, if they didn't stump up, would maybe well, you pay a little bit more in tax and then let's see who's complaining. Yeah. And also the other thing about that is just because someone decides to give money to one particular cause doesn't mean that's all they do. 
we looked at that and, and these people on their keyboards looked at that in isolation and said, oh, that CEO there gave $200 million to the Notre Dame. He's turning a blind eye on climate change. Well, we don't know what he's doing for climate change because no one's cared enough to actually look into it. So yeah. you'll always get that. And again, you know, charitable giving is not mutually exclusive. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I also think you're, you know, ultimately you're, you're right, and and the fact that any energy you spend worrying about it is energy that could have been used elsewhere doing something good for what you're trying to do. So uh, you're ultimately right. I just think that it's very easy to get frustrated yeah. with people that um, seem to find it easier to sit yeah. behind a keyboard and tell someone else what they're doing is wrong than give something a go themselves. And you're right, yeah. though, and, and I'm sure the organisations, the three people that gave $200 million to the Notre Dame Cathedral, I'm sure they've given money <laughs> elsewhere as well. I'm sure this is not yeah. their first charitable donation in their career. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've heard you talk about before, and you sort of touched on it a little bit before with the kids and the families and your friends in India that you work mm. with, and I heard you use the term, and I've actually used it since, and it was the difference of poverty of wealth and poverty of opportunity. Mm. Do you want to explain that quickly? I think if we talk about poverty, generally speaking, people will think about money, and that's exactly right. But with that comes poverty of opportunity. Right, so what I mean by that is... The poverty of wealth leads to poverty or lack of opportunities, and it's what causes that vicious cycle. If you don't have an opportunity to go to school or get an education or learn social skills, life skills or whatever, then you are hindered, basically. And I always remember there was a time when I was in India doing a little bit of research when I was in Chennai. And I was going around a local slum in Chennai meeting families and I was with a friend of mine. This was a Sunday. So t typically labourers will work six day weeks and have Sundays off. And in those sort of communities, there's a lot of you know, alcohol and things like that as I would say just a, a form of escapism. During that afternoon, there was a bit of commotion up the street and I sort of asked my mate what was going on. He said, oh, one of the guys had taken to his, his wife with a broken whiskey bottle and I, I was like, okay, that's obviously terrible. But the one thing that didn't sit right with me was that there's no one in that community saying to these kids, hey, that's not how you behave. This is not right. So they uh, have, there's a poverty of, of wealth mm -hmm. in these communities. But the fact that someone was stabbed with a broken whiskey bottle had nothing to do with not having money. Yeah. It was not having anyone saying, hey, that's not how you behave. And so that is kind of what summed up poverty of opportunity for me. And so I think if we want to break the cycle, then we need kids to have opportunities in life, role models in life to basically say, hey, this is how you should behave. This is not. It's a little bit chicken and the egg, but I think if we can provide the opportunities, then we can break that cycle so that poverty of wealth isn't such a massive problem. Yeah, yeah, and I really like the, I mean, the phrase, I guess. I think it, it sort of, it, to me, it opened my eyes and it made sense. Obviously, I've been to India and I've seen what you've done, but again, for me, it really highlighted the fact that what we have in New Zealand is not really a lack of opportunity. It's, do we have lack of wealth? Absolutely, and, and poverty mm. of wealth, totally. But you know, as you mentioned before, 140-odd organisations in New Zealand designed to help people giving them opportunities, yeah. and that just doesn't exist in India. And I wondered, I mean, this was just a thought, you know, you can be spoilt in wealth, and I think we're probably a little bit spoilt in opportunity as well. And I think, you know, when you look at, you know, the way some people are, 
you know, if you sit down and watch TV, back in the day when we had two or three channels, like mm. if a movie was on, you'd just mm. watch that movie. And it was great. <laughs> you'd watch it and you'd watch the ads and then blah, blah. Now what happens, you've got Netflix and you've got, you know, a million movies at your fingertips. And what happens is you you spend an hour and a half just trying to choose which one to watch. You know, it's almost like we're spoiled for opportunity. And I think, oh, I'm curious to know is like, you know, when we talk about New Zealand as an example, do you think some of us are spoiled for opportunity? I think we don't realise what we've got. Again, I go back to state school system here in New Zealand. You know, you look around even the lower decile schools and they've all got nice playing fields and space and things like that. And even something as small as that, I think, is a massive opportunity because if you've got space for kids to do things like PE and physical exercise and kick a ball around, then that's massive. When we talk about opportunity and wealth, money doesn't fix poverty, right? So if we have families who don't have much money and are poor, money doesn't fix that. Opportunities do. Education does. And that's one thing that that I've learned is that you can't solve problems by chucking money at it. You need to actually think strategically. And this is where I go back to my experience at university where there was nothing in university that told me how to set up a charity. But what I did understand was how to start a business. And that was one of the main things that, that I learned was that we have to actually focus on the structure of what we do and the curriculum and, and every nitty gritty detail because we can't solve problems by chucking money at it. We have to design solutions. And I think that comes down to the difference between poverty of wealth and poverty of opportunity. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I don't mean to put you on the spot with that question. You've, you've answered it very well. And I guess that, I mean, it's the same with anything. I think that um, adding more money to things doesn't necessarily solve it. Like I said at the start, the foundation's off. You know, yeah. like if you've got a, a business that, that's failing and you put more money in it, it's just got more money to fail with. You know, like, yeah. I mean, obviously adding capital and raising funds can help. But if you've got the system in place, which what you're saying is that money doesn't solve poverty, having a system in place then adding money to it Correct. helps the and solution. You, yeah, you need money to drive the car. But um, Yeah, yeah. yeah, Absolutely. What are some of the, the big wins you've had along the way? Because I know it's easier to sit around and talk about challenges and stuff, but you must have had some days and, you know, we all have them and they, they're generally years in the making, but you just, yeah. you must walk out of a meeting or you, you get an email and you must just go, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the two obvious ones are, are the relationships that we started with Dilmar and Tata I think without them we'd have nothing I think the wins for me are actually you know quite small wins so walking down the small alleyways in, in Colombo about a year after we launched and seeing a, a Cricket Live t-shirt hanging up on a clothesline in the middle of the street I thought was just incredible that like all of a sudden you're actually something and you know last year I bumped into a kid on the on the road, he came up to me and said, hey Alex, you know, you're in Sri Lanka. And it was one of our first kids that we had in the program. Now he's 18 and he's speaking great English. He's off to do night classes and things like that. And so you see that and you think actually what we've done and, and where we've got to is, is pretty cool. That said, I've struggled with being able to step back and appreciate those things because I, I feel a lot of the time I'm it's like I've got my head in the washing machine and, and I just need to take it out and appreciate what's going on. And if there's something that I need to improve on, it is that, enjoying the, the little wins. Because as you know, if you're running a business, it's really easy to get bogged down in what we perceive as small failures, but we don't give the same energy to the small wins. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and if, if you're a driven person, which you obviously are, you know, the 
I think it's called hedonic adaptation. It means like um, that you adapt to what you consider normal. So if you make progress, you then that sort of becomes, you adapt to that becoming new normal and you don't appreciate that growth that you've had. And I think that, yeah, it is it is sometimes those little things, seeing a T-shirt flying <laughs> in the thing and, or, you know, whatever it is. And, and every business or every organisation has their own little wins. But I think the little wins are important. And, and having some time to, like you said, take your head out of the washing machine yeah. and just go, man, like this is, we've made a difference, yeah. which you certainly have. How have you personally dealt with setbacks along the way? And I'm just I'm just curious that you may not have a specific process or something that you've that's helped you in the past, but anyone that has done anything, whether it's for profit, non for profit, or whatever it is, you've encountered setbacks and you you find yourself in personal challenges. And there's a lot of talk about it now. Um, I guess it's around mental management. Have yeah. you found anything particular that's worked for you? I think identifying allies is a big thing. Yeah, I've got no more than three people sort of in, in my contact book on my phone that you know I know I can ring and chat about anything. The struggle I have, and I, I haven't found a solution for this, is I don't talk about the foundation much to people that are really close to me, so my parents, my girlfriends, because you do need at times a little bit of escapism, and I'm conscious of bringing work home. The irony is... Sometimes you need to, and it's really interesting. And you'll you'll know kind of what I mean by that. You're tied up for so long working in something that is is so difficult, and it's emotional as well, and emotionally draining. And sometimes all you want to do is just talk to someone about it, have a cry, uh, have a rant, whatever it may be. But I I struggle to do that, um, and I think I need to get better at it because I think it was on the. TV show Modern Family, you know, if you sweep things under the rug too much, you just end up with a lumpy rug and you'll trip <laughs> up over it, you know. And so that's the the biggest thing with setbacks is I think understanding how to talk about it and, yeah, that mental management. I've not heard that phrase before, but that's exactly what it is because, you know, if you're a sports person, you have a strength and conditioning coach, you have a, a mental coach so that you can perform to the best of your ability when you're on the field. In business, we don't have that. We need to, and we should. I think it's something, and it's an area in my life that I need to get way better at because it's probably the equivalent of going out to play rugby with a dodgy hammy or something like that, and, and that's no good for anyone. Yeah, it's a really good analogy, actually, I think. And and when it's a physical problem, it's really like, – if you had a broken arm, it would be really obvious that, you know, we wouldn't send you out to play rugby <laughs> or something. But if you're you're stressed and you're tired mm. and you're, you know, overworked or whatever, it's, it's a lot harder for people yeah. to see and to put something in place. Mm. Obviously, you've got three people, like you've obviously got – some. They, yeah. you call them mentors, I guess? Yeah, 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 yeah. Having those is important. And if you can ring them and they sort of know the Inspire Foundation, we're both involved mm. and have got a real focus on that. Now, I think that really seems to – to be a way forward. Yeah, people having mentors, and it's almost like an apprenticeship. You know, like in you know, you think back, you know, five hundred years. It's like if you wanted to learn something, you went, you worked yeah, with definitely. a blacksmith for te- for five years, and and they almost it was a, it was almost a natural mentorship through yeah. it. And I think we've almost maybe got away from that a little bit, and I think moving back towards that is a really good option. And the other thing I thought about was. I've got this concept where I don't believe in work-life balance. I think that like you're one person and mm. you just wear different hats, and I yeah. think they they affect each other differently. And and the way I look at it is that if I have a really hard day at work or something goes really badly at work, 
I show up at home as not the best husband and not the best yeah. father and not the best friend and not yeah. the best son or whatever it is. And at the same time, if you have a really tough day at home when something goes badly, it's really hard to show up in yeah. the business and be a good leader or be a good boss or be yeah. a good accountant or builder yeah, or whatever yeah, you're yeah. doing. So I really think they cross-pollinate. I don't think work-life balance is a thing. I think we need to mm. get rid of that concept. And I think that we need to understand that we're a human being that is multi-leveled mm. and, and we're wearing different hats with arms and different things. And we need to understand that they affect each other mm. just as much. And that's been one of my learnings anyway. Yeah. The challenge is, and I, I totally agree with what you say, I think – the challenge is when you have setbacks, you normally think about it as, as a failure. And so my failures, main failures would be, let's say, <laughs> I'd love to say hypothetically, but let's say we run out of money and I've got 700 kids that rely on us, 25 full-time staff that rely on us, and then all of a sudden there's no money there. For me to go and talk to my girlfriend about this and say, you never guess what, but <laughs> got no money, that feels to me like I've totally failed. And I think I need to get out of that mindset because, as you say, it's no good for anyone just bottling that up. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are in the same boat. I'm just glad that this kind of, I like the term mental management, has become pretty widely accepted and people are aware of that now because it's you don't see it. You're not hobbling around on a broken leg. So I think that's that's something that needs to, you know, we need to put a bit of attention onto that. Yeah, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, I think the fact, like you said, that we're conscious of it, that it seems to be a bit of maybe popularity is the wrong word, but yeah. a bit of focus around it. You know, even professional sports teams have full yeah. you know, suites of people dedicated to helping people manage yeah. their, their mental state. I think that the same should be done because typically driven entrepreneurial people tend to be the ones that push themselves mm. very hard as well, you know, emotionally, just as much as um, an athlete would physically. Definitely. This maybe sort of leads on to like a next question a little bit. Is is having a balance in your life important? Like it must be with, with such a strong why that you've talked about so many times, like it must be hard to go out and enjoy yourself when you know there's you've got this in the background or are you able to sort of, you know, switch off a little bit and, and have a bit of fun yourself? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I love being able to do that because, you know, what fun would it be if you couldn't? The other challenge with that, and again, it goes back to other people's perceptions. And you know, people are quite funny when uh, maybe you go on holiday or you do something and they say, oh, it's funny that you can spend money on going on holiday when there are you know, kids over there. And you know, it's, it's that thing again about, you know, I always have the saying that says that you need to be able to enjoy your wealth to the same extent that you have empathy for those that don't have it. By that, I mean I've worked really hard to earn a living and, and I should be able to enjoy that. But at the same time, I need to understand that there are people out there that don't have that. That kind of helps put things in perspective a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it can be hard to have that empathy if you haven't been exposed to 
what you've seen. And I think that I had this idea that we won like a lottery, like an absolute lottery. The fact that, you know, like if someone's listening to this podcast, I'm going to imagine that you know, they have some level of, of financial and security in their life. And even just being born in New Zealand, we won an absolute lottery. And the yeah. only reason we don't appreciate that we won the lottery is because every single other person we know won the same lottery. Mm. And it's the same thing when you go over to you know a place like India and you visit the schools and the organisations that you're working with. Instantly, you know, to stick with the analogy, you're meeting people who didn't win that lottery, mm. and I think that instantly gives you the empathy which you have. And I think yeah. that a lot of people struggle with that is because they don't have that contrast. They only know people that won the lottery. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. I think to continue that analogy, I think there are different jackpots, different lotteries, because I think everything is relative. So when we're in New Zealand, we, we have to compare ourselves to people that live in New Zealand. And I think there are people you know, in this country that didn't necessarily win the lottery, maybe because they couldn't afford a lottery ticket. But as you say, we need to be able to understand that there are people out there that aren't as fortunate as us. And there may be people that are a lot more fortunate than us that need to have empathy for other people that aren't at that level as well. So yeah. it is all, all relative. And then the hardest thing is, you know, going to India where you, countries like India and Sri Lanka where where you see that disparity of wealth where there's just this massive gap between the haves and the have-nots. I don't think we've got that gap here, but there is a sliding scale. Yeah, totally. It does have a scale as well. And I guess maybe to refine it, I guess I would say that the people that you tend to associate with most of the time yeah. probably are in a similar situation than you. Yeah. And that's maybe why there's the, a lack of contrast with mm. people. How do you define success or, or when do you feel successful? I think for starters, success is firstly knowing you've done the right thing. So it's having that clear why and knowing that you're doing it for the right reason. I think at the end of the day, that's all you can really ask for. Everyone's got their own yes, um, their, their own sort of definition on success. Put it this way. I was talking to a guy that uh, used to be a management consultant at Deloitte, and they would be asked to go in and sort of assess these, these businesses around the world. And the first thing that they would do was to go in on the first day and just have a look and see how many people were smiling or laughing in the office. And that's how they knew how big a task they had ahead of them. And I think success is being happy, right? I know that sounds really cliche, but if you are happy, then it means that you've kind of, you're in control, you're doing the right thing, things are working out. Because as you say, you've got lots of different hats. And if all of those hats are, are worn at the same time, family, right? If you come home and everything's great at home, then everything will be easier at work because you're in a, in a good headspace. If things are good at work, then you'll have some form of financial security and things like that. So as cliche as it sounds, and I don't want to come across, I think it is going into the office and seeing how many people are smiling is success. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I heard um, someone speak last week and they talked about happiness is really is actually just making, you feel like you're making progress towards something you value. Yeah. So whatever it is that you value, if it's being able to play the trumpet well, mm -hmm. you know, if that's what you value and that's of high value to you and you can see yourself getting better at 
playing the trumpet, then yeah. that becomes important to you. If you if you value contributing financially to yeah. an organisation like yours, or if you value being a good father or a good brother yeah. or whatever it is, if you can see you're progressing towards that value, mm. then um, that tends up to be you know or positive emotions yeah, as a result of it. Yeah, and I guess the other thing with uh, with success is you are the only person that can determine whether or not you're successful, right? Because it's really easy for us to maybe speculate and say, oh, Tim Cook, really successful guy. But in his own mind, he might be thinking, shit, I need to up my game because, you know, my goals are here or my ambitions are here and I've got staff that are unhappy or whatever it may be. So you are the only one that can determine that. Good point. It's an inside job, I guess. And mm. that's interesting because one person's success could be, you know, like my version of success yeah. would be Tim Cook's. Like if, if Tim Cook amassed, you know, had the same, yeah. you know, owned the house that I own, he'd probably think he's fallen from grace sort of thing. So <laughs> I think that one person's success could be someone else's failure yeah. and, and recognising. And that's why I ask this question is because success is different to everyone and recognising what it is for you yeah. gives you a target to aim for. Yeah. What are you most proud of? I'm proud that I had an idea and I at least gave it a shot. I think there's a lot of excitement in that and that comes back to that passion for sort of entrepreneurship and that and that thrill. You know, I ended up starting a charity. I didn't start Snapchat or Apple or whatever it may be, but I started something. And I think that journey is funny. I, I still might be right at the beginning of that journey, but I'm proud that I gave it a shot. And it just means that when I do get a chance to take a step back and, and look at what we've achieved is pretty cool. Yeah, I can imagine. So what is next? What is the dream? What's the, you know, you probably, this is always going to be a part of you, you know, you've, mm. you've built it, but where is your focus going for the next five years? I've seen what businesses like Dilma and Tata can achieve in the world. And, you know, I remember talking to Merrill and he said, his biggest success in Dilma lies in what he does with his foundation. And I think for me, I want to be able to be in a position to make an impact that way through business. A couple of reasons behind that. One is that I guess that the skills I have align up to being able to set up a business and the fact that I started with a charity uh, means that I have that mindset where we can use a business as a force for good. So that's, I mean, long-term goal, I'd love to be in a position to either be part of or set up a company that can make a, a massive splash. I think now I'm I'm still really keen to learn. Um, so I'm going over to London to work for a company called Wasserman. It's a great company. It's an American-based company um, that operates you know, around the world, focusing on you know the commercial side of sport. And working for a company like that and seeing you know different styles of leadership, how the CEO does his job, how you know the managing directors do their jobs, I think for me is part of kind of developing my skills so that you know down the track I can have the, uh, I guess, the toolbox to create something that can make a difference. Yeah, well, I think you've already ticked that off, mate. So this is another difference, more <laughs> difference, and increase it. To finish up, what is, what's got your attention? What do you think about when you're, when you're trying to go to sleep at night? Oh, <laughs> I think um, it kind of goes back to that question that we spoke about with success. And, and my biggest worry at the moment, well, not worry, but consideration is who will Alex Reese be in 10 years' time? and trying to, as I say, learn the right skills to be able to get myself to that position. 
And so I think the next few years will be a massive learning journey because I don't think we ever stop learning. And I think that the more I can learn now, the better the future can be and potentially I might be able to mitigate a few mistakes early on. So I guess, yeah, for me, it's basically trying to position myself as Alex Reese and start building that sort of my own personal foundation so that I can I can do something pretty cool down the track. Yeah, well, Gemma, I, I already think you've ticked that off. But yeah, that's a... Um it's a really good answer. To finish off, is there any parting questions you want to leave the audience with? Any ideas, comments, maybe a quote or a bit of advice that you've been given over the years that um, has really helped you or something that's you know you think would be nice to, to leave everyone with? I remember, and it was in quite a sad stage of my life when my uncle passed away unexpectedly. He was um, a phenomenal guy, didn't have a family sort of gave his life to helping others and athletics was like his massive passion and uh you know he would every weekend be out there volunteering you know measuring the shot put timing the 100 meter sprints or whatever and he he worked a job he was in uh he worked for P&O a shipping company for you know 25 years and but whenever he was traveling and was um, coming back to New Zealand on the arrival card and occupation he used to put volunteer and um at his funeral, you know, they were given the eulogies and, and um, you know, there was a challenge set to the people in the congregation. And it basically said, let's follow Drew's lead and uh, everyone here needs to do something good in their lives and not tell anyone about it and just see how that feels. And I think that would be my challenge to anyone. Do something good mm. and not tell anyone about it. Yep. Why do you think that's important? Uh, it's genuine for starters. I just think you you owe it to the world, to be fair. And it doesn't matter what you do. People don't need to know that you spent a day collecting coins for child cancer. Why do you do it? Again, it comes back to the, the reason why. You know, if I'm volunteering for athletics, it, it's because I love athletics and I want to give back, not because I want people to say how amazing I am. So I think that it just means that it's it's more genuine and it's for the right reasons. I agree. That's a great point. Alex, mate, thank you so much. You are humble. You are inspiring. You're, a, uh, you're definitely making a splash in the world already. And I think that um, I guess I'm excited to follow how the Cricket Live Foundation grows and also um, where you end up. I wish you all the best as thank you head you. back to London. And um, how can people find you or the Cricket Live Foundation? How can they support that if someone's going, hey, look, I'd love to help Alex out? Yeah, cricketlivefoundation.org is where you'll find us. And obviously, you know, LinkedIn seems to be the tool these days. So, yeah, Alex Reese on LinkedIn as well. Rock and roll. Hey, mate, I've been very fortunate to see the the work that you're doing in India. And um, I'm sure it's the same in Shunaki. doing a phenomenal job. Awesome. Keep it up. Cheers, Manny. And there it is, Mr. Alex Reese. Told you he's an amazing guy. He actually has a full-time job as well as running the charity. So he is a busy man. And once again, we really appreciate him making the time to stop by and have a chat. Also, I really appreciate you for listening. I love having these conversations. I love making the podcast and I'm just so grateful that people like you enjoy the episodes and uh, and tune in and check them out. So if you did take any form of value out of today's episode, if you could do one of three things, that would just be amazing and I would really appreciate it. One of them would be to check out the Cricket Live Foundation online. They really do do some amazing work. Secondly, you could share this episode with someone you know or you think might also get some value out of it. Or thirdly, you could jump online to iTunes and leave a positive review 
review for the Road to Success podcast. Other than that, thank you so much for tuning in. I really, really hand on heart appreciate it. There'll be another episode out soon. Until then, have a great day. See ya. Bye.